Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. Right now, we just want to open our hearts to you and ask that it wouldn't be any other voice but your voice that would speak and that you would fulfill your promise of Isaiah 55, that you would accomplish what you send your word for. We cling to these promises this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. My mom stood on the sidewalk and stared at me in disbelief. It's a moment that I will always regret, I imagine. I had just said one of the craziest things ever. One of the things that I wish that I had never said to my mom. You see, I had just turned 18 years old, or I was about to turn 18 years old, and my mom was still trying to help me be inspired to live the life that she felt I should live. I had some very poor grades at that point in high school, and so as a motivating factor, she limited me from doing something that I really wanted to do. And as she told me that that weekend I would not be able to make the trip that I wanted to make, I looked at her and I said, oh yeah, I'll move out. How crazy was that? She just looked at me in disbelief and said, really? (laughs) You think that you're going to move out? I was going to be 18 years old though. I mean, I could live my own life. I was going to be an adult. I didn't need to be dependent on my parents anymore. I just didn't need them anymore. This was my mom. My mom who, I mean, I was a 10-pound baby. I deserve a lot. I, I mean, my mom deserves a lot of thanks that she brought me into this world. Then she fed me for years before I could even walk and then I could talk. And then she took care of me before I had ever done anything worthy of her attention. Year after year, my mom took care of me, provided for me. She provided for my schooling. She provided for me eventually to get my license, to have a car, the car that I was threatening to get in and drive away and never come back in. That was from my mom and dad. And yet I thought I just didn't need them anymore. I thought I could live life on my own. This is a common tendency within our hearts. As we get older and older, we begin to feel independent. We begin to feel that we can do it on our own. We begin to feel that we have what it takes to survive in life. And yet this is the opposite of the lesson that God is longing to teach us this morning. Go with me to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus has just told his disciples that they need to follow him in a way that didn't make much sense to them. He told them, Actually, Matthew chapter 17, sorry. In Matthew chapter 16, the end of it, he had told them that they needed to pick up their cross and follow after him. Now, this was some instruction for their life that they didn't want to follow. They had no desire to be crucified. And they didn't want Jesus to be crucified. Peter had rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to be crucified. Jesus needs somehow to help them, to stir faith in them for what's coming to them. They're going to have to see Him on the cross. And they're going to have to learn how to take up their own cross. And in order to teach them how to have faith that can endure a trial like that, He takes them to the mountain. We looked a little bit at this last week. And we're going to again look at this story. This this time we're in Mark. In Matthew chapter 17, last week we were in Mark chapter 9. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Who's missing in this picture? Jesus usually had 12 disciples with him, plus a multitude of other followers, but every once in a while, there was this exclusive moment. And this is one of them. Jesus chooses to just take Peter, James, and John with him, what do you think the other disciples are doing? Nine other disciples who don't get to go with Jesus up on this mountain. And maybe at first they were thankful because this is late at night and they get to go and get their rest while Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. But I imagine as time progresses, they began to think, well, why, why did James get to go? I mean, really, 
James and John, they're, they have a temper problem. They're the ones that are always wanting to call fire down from heaven. And why, why did Jesus pick those brothers to go up there with him? I don't understand. And Peter? Of all people, people Peter? I mean, he's the one who always has to spout off. And he's the one, didn't Jesus just tell him, get behind me, Satan? Why is Jesus taking him with him on the mountain? Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them after he led them up on that high mountain. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter, that one who always speaks out, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now commentators guess that it may have been around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Peter's thinking, hey, this is a great place where we could celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This is beautiful. Jesus, I've never seen you shine so brightly. And here's Moses and Elijah. This is just such an amazing moment. Let's just stay right here. It's a logical thing, isn't it? I mean, why wouldn't they want to stay here? They could just invite people to come there. And when people saw Jesus in his glory, they would learn to worship him. And all of those priests and Pharisees who were constantly rejecting Jesus, obviously they would have to see that Jesus was worthy of their worship. They would have to see that Jesus was who he claimed to be. While he was still speaking... God interrupts Peter. (laughs) Peter is still in the the process of giving this proposition to Jesus of staying on the mountain. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God cared about getting that message across about his Son because he repeats it. Multiple times when God speaks about Jesus, this is what you hear him saying. My beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, hear him, listen to him, follow what he has to say. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. you imagine how hard that was for these three disciples? They wanted to stay there on the mountain and invite the whole world to come and see this glorious moment. They wanted to be there close to Jesus when he was shining in all of his glory. And now they can't even tell anybody about what has taken place. I don't know about you, but when I think about God, when I think about telling the world about Jesus, I long for glorious manifestations of his power. I want for Jesus to just come and display all that he can do. I want to see miracles. I want to see people healed. I want to see wondrous manifestations of who God is. Why doesn't God display himself in just all of his glory so that the whole world can just fall down and worship him today? But Jesus refuses to stay on the mountain. And he takes his disciples down the mountain. And there at the the foot of the mountain, we talked last week about how there at the foot of the mountain were his nine disciples with the scribes arguing with them because they had failed at casting out this demon. And we talked about how this demon would take this child. Since he was born until this age, the father said he would take him and he would just be convulsing on the ground. He would be foaming at the mouth. He would be ready to throw himself into the fire, into the water, trying to kill this child. The disciples have gone from the mountaintop to the very lowest of lows. They've gone from seeing God's glory to seeing the great controversy at its worst. They've gone from seeing what God intends to seeing how low humanity has sunk. 
And in that moment, those nine disciples are able to do nothing to help that demoniac. They're not able to cast the demon out. And we saw last week how Jesus is able to do that and he's cast out that demon. And then he says to them when they come up to him and they say, why couldn't we cast that demon out? In verse 19, the disciples come to Jesus privately. They don't want to say this in front of anybody else, but they say, why could we not cast it out? What, what did we miss, Jesus? What was it that went wrong? Verse 20, so Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. If you guys just believe in me and who I am and what I can accomplish, anything is possible. There will be nothing impossible for you. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? But Jesus goes on to say something crucial to them in verse 21. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Without prayer, without fasting, the disciples somehow were not prepared for this moment. And then Jesus goes on to say this. Again, he repeats what he is about to do. In verse 22, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. The disciples didn't want this type of Messiah. The disciples didn't want the Christ to die. The disciples wanted Jesus on the mountaintop. The disciples wanted Jesus in all of his glory. They didn't want for him to humble himself and to go to the point of a cross, let alone to take up their own cross and to follow after Jesus. Keep your finger here and let's go back to Mark chapter 9. Because Mark chapter 9 picks up this story and what happens immediately after Jesus tells them this, that he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. In verse 33, it says this, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? What were you guys arguing about as we walked along? What was it? Now, apparently the disciples had separated themselves a little bit from Jesus. They weren't walking right with him, and he couldn't quite hear, or at least they thought he didn't know what they were talking about. He says, what was it that you disputed among yourselves as you walked along the road? Verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. They just don't get it. But as I read this, I have to ask, do I get it? Do I really understand what the kingdom of heaven is all about? Here with the disciples, and Jesus is trying to tell them about the cross. He's trying to tell them how I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to go all the way to this gruesome death on a cross, and I'm doing it for you, and I want you to follow after me. And they're thinking, he's going to Jerusalem. He must be going to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom now, when he sets up his kingdom, now, which of us will he choose to be at his right hand? Which of us is going to be first in his kingdom? I wonder, it's, I bet it's going to be me. I mean, I haven't said the stuff that Peter said. And I haven't made the mistakes that James and John have made. I mean, he may call them with him up on the mountain, but I bet that he might choose me. You see, this was the problem in the lives of the disciples that kept them from having faith. Pride is incredibly dangerous in our lives. You know why pride is so dangerous? Because when we have pride, we have no clue the problems that we face. Back in Andrews, Michigan, I was doing a summer youth program, and one day they wanted to have a day at the lake where we set up these different games and stuff for them to play. And I went out and we had a, uh, a net that we were setting up for, um, what's the, the game where you have the long rackets and you hit the badminton. We set up a badminton net there on the grass and it was about this high and we set it up there. Now we had invited a new young person who was at the high school 
to come and be a part of this. Now, he had recently moved from Africa. He was a fit young man. And as I set up this badminton net across, and I, I was getting it all set up, and I had gotten it finally really tight, and then I backed up just to look and see what it was like. All of a sudden, this young man comes running, and he jumps over this badminton net. thought, well, that's not what it was designed for, but that was pretty cool. Huh. You know, I'm taller than him, and I can jump higher than him. I'm pretty sure I can jump over that net. Yes. So I backed up as far as I could, ready to get a good run at this net that was there. And I began to run, and then I began to hear high school students saying, No! No, Pastor Zach, don't do it! (laughs) I thought, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to impress all of these high school students with how high I can jump right now. And as I ran up to the net, I jumped... And I hit right in the middle of the net and fell and took the whole net and all of my hard work down. I thought that I could jump over the net. I thought that I had what it took, but I didn't realize that I'd been sitting on a couch for the past year and a half studying books and my legs had changed. I didn't recognize the problems that I had in my life. I thought that I could do it. I thought that I had what it took to clear the net. The disciples had a problem as they stood there at the bottom of the mountain and they were approached with this demoniac child. They thought that they had commands from Jesus. They thought that they could cast out demons. They thought that they had what it took in order to accomplish what God had told them to do. They thought that they could impress Jesus when he came back down the mountain and they could tell him, Jesus, while you were gone on the mountain, and I know you took Peter, James, and John with you, but... We cast out this demoniac from this child while you were gone. Desire of Ages tells us about what the disciples were doing at the bottom of the mountain. Page 431, it says, The words of Christ pointing to his death had brought sadness and doubt to the disciples. And the selection of three disciples to accompany Jesus to the mountain had excited the jealousy of the nine. The nine are at the bottom of the mountain and they're jealous of these three who have been chosen by Jesus to see Him in all of His glory. Instead of strengthening their faith by prayer and meditation on the words of Christ, they had been dwelling on their discouragements and personal grievances. Man, why would He choose Peter? Why James and John? And I don't really like you either. I think I'm going to be the greatest disciple. In this state of darkness, they undertook the conflict with Satan. They attempted to take on Satan at a moment where they were trusting in themselves, where they were looking at others, they were criticizing others, they were putting others down, and they didn't recognize that Satan was planting all of that in their hearts. I mean, wasn't it Satan? If you go back to Isaiah chapter 14, Satan's fall was due to this same attitude that they have. As they're looking up at this mountain, and they're wanting to know why they're not up on the mountain with Jesus, it's the same exact attitude that Lucifer had in heaven. In Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. You've caused so much problems, Lucifer. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I want to go on that mountain. God, I don't understand why you've limited me from being there on the mountain. I want to be a sharer in your glory. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pits. Friends, we can't go to battle with a heart that is focused on what we can do and what we can accomplish. Friends, we can't go to battle looking at other people saying, well, you know, they've made worse mistakes than I have. Or why are they doing this? When we criticize, it reveals the pride in our own hearts. When we don't recognize the problems in our own heart, that pride is deadly because we cannot take on the enemy with that type of pride in our hearts. The Desire of Ages continues, in order to succeed in such a conflict, talking about the disciples, they must come to the work in a different spirit. 
their faith must be strengthened by fervent prayer and fasting and humiliation of heart. Taking time to pray is humbling. Because nobody knows the time that you've spent in prayer. That leaves you totally reliant upon what God can do rather than on what you can accomplish. Because during that time, you're not able to to put anything together that people are going to recognize, but you've simply spent time connecting with God. And you're trusting in what God can accomplish. Their faith must be strengthened by fervent prayer and fasting and humiliation. They must be emptied of self and be filled with the Spirit and power of God. Earnest, persevering supplication to God in faith. Faith that leads to entire dependence upon God. Unreserved consecration to His work can alone avail to bring men the Holy Spirit's aid in the battle against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and wicked spirits in high places. We talked last week about how in Luke, 6, in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus... Immediately after this, he sends out the 70, and he sends them out to cast demons out, and they come back all excited because the demons are listening to them. They're being cast out. Jesus says, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you, but rejoice because your name is written in heaven. And we talked about how the most important mountain that God can move in our lives, when we have faith like a mustard seed, the mountain that God most wants to move in our life is that obstruction of sin that's in our life. Micah chapter 7 says, I will subdue all of your iniquities and I will cast them into the depths of the sea. But so often we begin to lose faith, we begin to lose heart, we go on in our Christian journey and we have the same fallings over and over and we lose faith in Jesus because we're failing. But our eyes are focused on the wrong thing. We need a renewed picture of who Jesus is and what he can accomplish because 1 John 5 tells us that this is the the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The disciples have a problem. They need a mountain to be moved, but they need the mountain to be moved in their own heart. They have a problem of pride. Pride is extremely dangerous because when you're filled with pride... You don't recognize it. It's the most deadly of all sins because you look around and you see everyone else's problems and you see the problems of everyone around you and you don't see the problems in your own heart. Lord, save us from pride. This is what led Lucifer to fall, that glorious being in heaven. As he looked at himself, he began to say, why can't I have the place that Jesus has? Why can't I have all the worship and adoration of the angels? And this is what led to his fall. Jesus has a serious problem to help the disciples with. Can you see it? As those nine disciples, actually now it's the twelve, they're walking along, they're disputing with each other, saying, Which of us is going to be the greatest? When we get to Jerusalem, is it going to be Peter? Is it going to be James? No, I think it's going to be me. I am going to be the highest in his kingdom. Jesus has to help them somehow. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, we pick up the story of the disciples disputing. And here it doesn't tell us about their argument, but instead it just tells them about finally they get up the courage to go to Jesus and say, okay, so which one of us is it? And sometimes we look at the disciples and say, why would they do that? I mean, they're just prideful, they're arrogant. But this is a practical question, isn't it? When it comes to his kingdom being set up, he's talking about being taken away from them. He's talking about he better set up some sort of order. He better set up who's going to be the leader. When Acts comes, I mean, who's going to stand up and be the one to carry the church forward? The question sounds arrogant, and yet to them, it was an important question. They needed to know, what was the rank going to be in the kingdom? How can we organize ourselves? Who do we follow? And so in verse 1, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has got a problem with his disciples. They're filled with pride. They're filled with wanting to ascend to the mountaintop. They don't want to come down the mountain to the depths of society. They want 
to ascend as high as they can. But Jesus looks at them. Verse 2, And then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And Mark and Luke, when they recount this, they say that Jesus took that child up in his arms and he just begins to just hold that child in his arms. And as he's there lovingly holding this child in his arms, this is what Jesus says. Don't miss this. Verse 3, And said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, here are disciples, followers of Jesus, ones who have seen His glory on the mountaintop, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Hey guys, Forget about who's going to be the greatest. You're not even going to make it into the kingdom of heaven unless you're totally, radically changed to be like this dependent, helpless child. If you don't become like this child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest one in the kingdom of heaven is the one who has childlike faith. The one who has childlike dependence. Now this doesn't mean that it should be a a childlike understanding. We're told in several places in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. There are childish things that we shouldn't go after. It was interesting back in the 1800s, around 1844, when they were expecting Jesus to come back. Some people read this verse and they knew that they needed to become like little children. So they actually literally said, well, we've got to act like children. And so they all began to crawl around like little children. And they would babble because they wanted to be just like a child. Jesus isn't calling For us to do that, when he says be converted and become like a child, he's not calling us for us to get a pacifier and put it in our mouths and to suck our thumbs. But Jesus is calling us to something more than that. There's an interesting verse in Corinthians. I believe it's in uh, 1 Corinthians. Sorry, chapter 14 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20 talks about not being childlike, not being childish, but actually being childlike. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20, it says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. So don't be like a child in your understanding of things. Don't be like a child in that way. But then what does it go on to say? It says, however in malice or in, in evil, some versions will say, be babes, but in understanding, be mature. This verse is telling us, be innocent like a child. Be, have the innocence of a child. You know, it's kind of an odd thing in our society. <clears throat> Once you get to a certain age, suddenly the harmful things that were hurtful to children are no longer hurtful to you. I'm not sure how that happens, that suddenly when you turn 18, yeah, maybe tobacco is okay for you to decide that you want to smoke tobacco. When you turn 21, then it's okay for you to decide to drink alcohol. Obviously, if it's not good for a child, it must not be good for an adult. And then we have other things that are, I would say, anything that is regulated to be not for children. Anything that requires parental guidance, what does the Bible say? says, when it comes to malice, when it comes to evil, be children, be innocent, be babes. If it's not good for a child, it's probably not good for you either. That entertainment, that stuff in your life, it's, if it's not good for your children, if you don't want them watching it, it's probably not so good for you either. That's what the Bible says. But going back to this idea of childlike faith in Matthew chapter, chapter 17 where we were, What does it look like to be converted and to become like a child? There's this innocence factor. But what else is there? I heard an illustration of a woman who was at a bank. And as she was there at the bank, she 
had in line her child in a stroller that she was pushing in front of her. As she was pushing this child up to the, to the bank window, if you were an observer, you would notice that the people in line were kind of anxious. Sometimes the way people are at the bank, especially around the time of a financial crisis, the people were burdened, they were concerned, they were thinking about their finances, they were wondering how they were going to make ends meet. But that child in the stroller, as it looked around and smiled at the, the people in line, It had no concerns about the dollar amount that was in mom's bank account. It had no concerns to know where its next meal was going to come from. Because that child was a dependent. It was reliant upon its mom. And its mom had never let it down. And so it had no reason to be concerned. Friends, God calls you and I to humble ourselves like little children. To become dependent again on God. Peter finally learned this. Peter, who was so quick to talk about greatness, who was so quick to talk about being the greatest. If you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter finally got it, and as he's writing a letter to the church, he tells them to humble themselves like children. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, it says, Likewise, you younger people, it's been talking about the elders, the bishops in the church, Says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, how many? All of you be what? Submissive to one another. All of you submit to each other in love. Put each other first. Have a preference for the other person's needs, for the other person's, what they're going through in their life. Submit to one another. And be clothed with humility. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? It's like saying that every day, Peter says, when you wake up in the morning, put humility on as your clothes for the day. As you walk through the day, when people look at you, and sometimes you, you notice what a person is like based on what they're wearing. Well, that must be a businessman because he's wearing a suit and tie. That must be a doctor. He's wearing scrubs. And that must be... A homeless person, because look at how tattered his clothes are. Could be that that's why Peter uses this analogy. But as he uses this analogy, he says, what you should clothe yourself with, what everybody should see, what they should notice about you is your humility. Clothe yourselves. Put it on every day that this is your attitude of being submissive, being humble, being loving to others. Clothe yourselves with humility. Well, that sounds good. I I want to live like that, don't you? But Peter, how exactly do we go about living like this? Well, he goes on to give reason for it. He says, for God resists the proud or, or God opposes the proud. You don't want pride in your life because God resists that. God cast Lucifer out of heaven because of his pride. Pride is a dangerous thing. God resists. God opposes the proud. Peter says this is why you want to make sure you're clothed in humility because God resists the proud. Thankfully, the verse goes on, but gives grace to the humble. Oh, how much we need grace. But grace comes to the humble. Wasn't it Jesus who said, I didn't come to heal those who don't need a doctor, but I came to heal the sick. I came to those who needed me. The Pharisees couldn't understand why he always mingled with sinners and publicans, and he told them, they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven before you because they recognize their need for me. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is why God wants you to be clothed with humility so that he can pour grace into your life. God is a gentleman and he's not going to give you what you don't ask him to give you. This is why prayer and fasting is so crucial because it leads us to a humble dependence upon God for what he alone can do in our lives. Jesus said in the Sermon on the the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. But if you're not hungering and thirsting, if you're not asking God for that grace, for the righteousness of Christ to be poured into your life, He can't give it. When we have so much pride that we don't recognize that we need to be changed, that we need to be converted like little children, there's nothing He can do. 
But it keeps going, and it gives us a more beautiful picture of why it is that God wants this for us. He says, therefore, for this reason, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You need to humble yourself because God is mighty. He's on his throne. He's all-powerful. He has all power in the entire universe. He has a mighty hand. So humble yourselves under his mighty hand. And if we don't, what does that imply? If, if we humble ourselves and we come under his mighty hand, to not humble ourselves, to have pride is to, to try to jump over the net in our own strength, to try to do what it takes in our own strength, to think that we have might, to think that we have what it takes in order to fight the battle with the enemy. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. When God calls us to be humble, it's not so that we can just live a groveling life, but it's because this is the law of the entire kingdom of the universe. This is the law of love. This is the way that God knows to win the great controversy. If you think about it, for Jesus himself, as he sat there on the throne of the universe and he saw a planet that rebelled against him. Why not show up in all of his power and his glory? Why not force them into submission? Because that was not the path of love. He wanted to come to them in humility. Philippians chapter 2 tells us to have the same mind in us which was in Christ Jesus, to, to give each other preference, to put each other first, just like Jesus did, that he descended from that Mount Zion in heaven came down to this tiny planet and humbled himself, becoming obedient all the way to becoming obedient to the point of death. Step by step by step, coming down the mountain, coming all the way down to demoniacs here on earth. Those who had been tricked by the enemy. Those who had been tricked into accepting all that the enemy had fed to us. Jesus knew that the way of salvation, the way to true exaltation, was to humble himself. And Jesus tried to picture this for his disciples. He tried to give them this picture of them coming down the mountain and of them holding a little child and saying, you need to become like this little child. You don't want to stay on the mountain, Peter. But you need to come down and follow my example. Take up your cross and follow after me. First Peter continues, says he wants to exalt you in due time. And, and Philippians 2 says exactly that, that it says that after all of this, after he humbles himself to the point of death, then God will bestow on him a name which is above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Jesus knows that the path to exaltation comes through humility. So Peter tells us, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Why or how? Verse 7 continues. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Isn't that beautiful? God wants for you to become humble like a child. He wants for you to become humble like a child who is dependent upon his parents. Not like Zach when he's 18 years old and saying, I'm ready to move out. I can do what it takes. I can handle it all on my, my own. Thank you very much. I want to move out. God is calling us to a relationship of dependence. Some of us have grown up a little too much in thinking that we can handle the problems of life, in thinking that, that we have what it takes, in thinking that we're our own financial counselor, that we're our own work guidance counselor, that we're our own family counselor. And God's saying, I want to help you in your life. I want to deal with what you're going through in your life. I want to help you. But it takes humility. It takes becoming like a humble child and relying upon the strength of one who is all-powerful, who can take care of all of your problems. 
Peter, at the end of this, telling you to clothe yourself with humility, telling us that, that God opposes the proud, that, that God gives grace to the humble, that we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He says, casting all your cares upon him. This is how you enter into a humble relationship. It's recognizing that I don't have what it takes and that I need a Savior. I need the strength that he alone can give to me. This is really what justification by faith is all about. Justification by faith is really coming to the end of ourselves and recognizing our need of a Savior. The faith I live by, page 111, it says, What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, They are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When we finally recognize that that net is just too high, that God has set before us a standard of righteousness that we see in the law of God, that we see in the life of Jesus, and we recognize that there is no possible way that I can jump over that. It's absolutely impossible. And yet God calls me to jump over it. God says that when he comes back, We will be rewarded according to our works. How does that work? Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved. Where does grace come from? It comes as we humble ourselves and we come to the feet of Jesus and we plead for Him to reveal His power and to fill us with His power in our lives. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God, is a precious thought. The enemy of God, that one who said, I will ascend to the heights, the one that wants you to think that you can ascend to the heights. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented. For he knows that if the people receive it fully, His power will be broken. God wants to break the power of the enemy in your life, but it takes coming to the end of yourself. Faith is the victory. Faith is the only way to overcome. It's only as we look to Jesus as our as the author and perfecter of our faith. Sometimes we think we've got to come to Jesus and then we finish the work afterwards, but Jesus wants to finish the work in you. Sometimes we think all we need to do is come to Jesus and just trust in what he has done for us and not worry about him changing our lives. But what does he tell us to do? Humble ourselves, to come to him in prayer. And he wants to give us the victory. Rick was born in 1962. His parents were so excited. His dad His dad's name is Dick. He said, as I saw my little boy laying there, I thought, wow, he's already doing push-ups. This is amazing. But he didn't realize something. Little Rick, as he was about to be born, had had the, the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. And as he was there in the womb, he had not had enough oxygen. And Rick now had cerebral palsy. And Rick was convulsing. That wasn't push-ups that Rick was doing. Rick was now quadriplegic. How heartbreaking to parents to see your child. You created this. You, you expect something better. You expect that your child is going to be whole and he's going to be able to run and play with other children. But here is Rick laying there helpless. He can't do anything for himself. And as Rick got a little older, and they they took him to the doctors. The doctor said, you just need to put Rick in an institution. You need to lock Rick up and put him in a place where they can take good care of him because he's going to limit your whole life. You have two healthy boys. Just don't worry about Rick. But Dick said, no, I'm not doing that. I love Rick like I love my other two boys. And everything that my other two boys that I take them to do, I'm taking Rick to do. And so he would take little Ricky everywhere and he would 
push him around in a, in a stroller. He would have birthday celebrations with him. He would take him to the pool. He would take him on all the fun summer outings. He was determined that Rick, so far as possible, would live a normal life. And then one day, in 1977, Rick was 15 years old. And Rick, had, he'd gotten a, a computer program when he was 12 years old that had enabled him to be able to, to, to express himself at least a little bit so that his parents could, could listen to what he had to say as he typed it out. Rick told his parents, there's this, this running event coming up, this, this five-mile event. I want for dad to push me in this event. Now, Dick was not a runner. And as Dick heard that Rick wanted him to push him, he said, well, we're going to do it because I want my boy to be able to do what he wants to do in life. And so he got, uh, pushed him in that wheelchair that morning and they finished dead last that morning. Actually, it wasn't dead last. It was second to last that they finished. But at least they finished that five-mile run. And that inspired Dick He said, as I ran, I felt something different. But when they got back, and they got back to the computer, Rick began to type out something to his dad that changed his dad's life forever. He said this to his dad. He said, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. Dad, I don't feel like I'm a... I'm a cripple anymore. When I'm out there and you're running, Dad, it feels like I'm not disabled anymore. And that was enough for Dick. Dick began to train like he'd never trained before. Dick went on to run in 1,000 races with little Rick. To push him year after year for 37 years because when he pushed him, Rick became a champion. Rick, as he would go across the finish line, Rick felt like a champion himself because his dad had pushed him. In closing, I just want to watch a little video clip about Rick Hoyt and the Hoyt team, about them going in the Ironman triathlon. Hopefully it'll play for us. But as you watch this, just think about what your God has done for you. Romans chapter 5 says that at just the right time, when we were still without strength, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Will you let him push you? Will you let him push you in the race of life? Those of you that aren't familiar with Ironman, that's 70.3 miles, that's... 1.2 miles of swimming, 13.1 miles of biking, and 56 miles, sorry, 56 miles of biking and 13.1 of running. They've run marathon after marathon. They've competed in the Boston Marathon. Dad, when we're running, I just don't feel like I have a disability anymore. That's what Jesus wants for your life. He wants for you to humble yourselves like a little child and to experience what he has for you. In the fifth Bible commentary, it says, Humility is an active principle growing out of a thorough consciousness of God's great love. When we recognize God's love, when we cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us, we will finally be able to humble ourselves like a child. I want to come to the place where I realize that in my Christian walk, I have less strength than Rick Hoyt to run the race. I need the author and finisher of my faith to be behind me, pushing me, to be in me, filling me. Rick's dad said this. He said that he's my motivator. I'm just loaning him my arms and legs so he can compete. Jesus wants to loan you his arms, his legs. He wants to compete through you. He wants to work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. But it takes humbling ourselves. It takes craving the righteousness of Christ in our lives and recognizing that we're more helpless than a quadriplegic to run the race, but that we can run with endurance when we fix our eyes on Jesus. This morning, don't walk out of here with your burdens. 
Do what Peter said. Clothe yourself in humility and cast all your anxiety upon Jesus this morning for He cares for you. He cares about your salvation. Luke tells us that it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus cares about you and He wants to win the victory in your life. Will you trust Him? Will you humbly walk with your hand in His, asking Him to do that which you could never do in your own strength? Friends, this is the most important lesson that we can learn. This is how our names are written in the book of life, by trusting completely to the merits of Jesus and allowing Him to fill us with His righteousness. I just want to invite you again to go to your knees this morning if you're able. And as you kneel in closing prayer here, I just want to ask that you surrender whatever cares and anxiety you have in your heart right now. The things that you've been hanging on to, that you've been trying to accomplish in your own strength. Cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Recognizing His love will lead you to a deeper humility and humble dependence upon Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come with all types of burdens, all types of things that we've felt that we've grown up enough to carry in our own strength. God, I just want to ask for forgiveness this morning. I want to ask for forgiveness for asking to move out. God, I I want to be a dependent again. I want to be fully relying on Jesus. I want to believe that you care for all the details of my life and that you want to do what you've commanded me to do in me. I want to believe that I can love you with all of my heart, with all of my strength, with all of my soul, and my neighbor as myself. Not based on what I can do, but based on you filling me. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for teaching us the lesson of humility. Thank you for teaching us that you give grace to the humble. Father, we cast all of our cares upon you this morning. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for being our loving Heavenly Father who watches out for all the details of our life and who longs to give us victory after victory. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.